this morning we are looking at, you could technically say three different attributes, wisdom, truth, and faithfulness. Uh, truth and faithfulness kind of go together. Uh, they're two sides of the same coin, so if you get truth, faithfulness just kind of falls in line with it. So technically three, but they're going to fit together like they're one. Uh, we're going to begin with the attribute of wisdom. Um, you remember a few weeks ago we looked at the issue of omniscience, right? And we talked about what is knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. Um, an uneducated man can be wiser than a scholar. You can have absolutely no academic education whatsoever, and you can be much wiser than everybody around you who has a bunch of degrees. You'll, you'll hear them say, they're all book and no brains. They, they have a whole bunch of knowledge, but no common sense. Knowledge you gain through study. You can gain knowledge by simply reading some books, uh, by going to classes, by watching videos. You can gain knowledge in a whole bunch of different ways. You att attain knowledge through just basically studying. Wisdom, though, comes from insight into reality. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's understanding the world around you and the circumstances around you. Knowledge is theoretical. I might know the process of building a table, but trust me, I cannot build a table. I don't have the wisdom in that. Wisdom is practical. Knowledge refers to having facts and information. You can have a whole bunch of facts and not know how to use any of them, and they do absolutely nothing for you. You might say it's useless knowledge. Riz wisdom, not wisdom, wisdom refers to the ability to apply facts and information in practical ways. So back to the table example. I may know the process of building a table. I may know what supplies I need to make the table. Wisdom is the technical skill set required to actually get those materials, bring them together, cut the wood, and put it all together and build a table. Now, I do want to go back and just do a quick review of knowledge, just so we understand. Knowledge is the intellectual apprehension of truth. You obtain knowledge by gaining an understanding of what is true. What is true corresponds to reality. God's knowledge is natural. When you want to obtain knowledge, what do you do? You open a book. You go to a class, you obtain knowledge from outside of yourself. God's knowledge is natural to himself. He doesn't have to go to an outside source. This is just a review from omniscience. He has it naturally. He has perfect knowledge. He has always possessed his knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. That means he does not learn. He's never learned a thing. And he's never forgotten anything. Wouldn't that be nice? He doesn't have to think through decisions. When we say that God's knowledge is perfect, when he came up with a plan of salvation, as intricate as it is, he didn't have to think it through. He had all of the knowledge perfectly instantaneously. And his knowledge is immediate, which is what I just said. It's instantaneous. He sees all truth in front of him in one big picture, and he sees it clearly. So... That's knowledge. Let's talk about what is the attribute of wisdom. When we say that God is wise, what are we talking about? 
Wisdom, like knowledge, is a communicable attribute. It's an attribute that you receive some of it. You don't have it perfectly, but you do receive some. You receive a form of this attribute. And to understand this, I want to look at wisdom as it appears in us. And we'll start with us and work our way up to God. And we're going to do that by doing a little word study. We'll do some Hebrew this morning. You excited? It's going to be fun. One word. It's only one word. That one. Hakma. Hakma. It, it's the word that refers to wisdom. It's translated most often as wisdom. Um, the word here refers to skill in technical matters. It could also refer to experience or shrewdness. Don't take shrewdness as a negative. I used to think if you call someone shrewd, you're insulting them. No, it's actually not. It's more of cleverness. And it's also referred, used to refer to skill in daily living. So the Hebrew word here is hakma, and it refers to these three things. And we're going to go through the scriptures and just look at the ways that this one term is used. And then we'll take what we've learned and we'll, we'll apply it to God. It's used to refer to technical abilities, technical skills. Exodus 28, you shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of knowledge that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. Here wisdom is being referred to as the ability to make garments. The skill set, the, the knowledge applied to be able to weave fabric together. And the highlighted word there is our Hebrew word, hakma. But this is not the only place that this term is found. Hakma is also found in this verse. It's right there. Translated as the skill for person. It's the same word. It describes the ability to use knowledge in a practical way, in a technical sense. And here, it's the technical sense is making garments for a minister. It's used again in Exodus 31. I have filled him with a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all the craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood. This term here for wisdom refers to the technical abilities to carve wood, cut stone, to design artwork out of gold and silver. It's describing practically applied knowledge in the area of of artistry. Exodus 31, verse 6. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, same term, same word, I have put skill that they may have all that I have commanded you. The word here is talking about the skill sets, the, the materials, the, the knowledge necessary, and the ability to apply that knowledge in a practical way. Wisdom can be used to refer to skill in technical matters. It can also refer to, um, to the ability to win in battle, to make plans. If you're a general and you have wisdom, you're a wise general, you can formulate a good plan for your army and then carry it out. How many of you remember Isaiah 10? Anybody remember what happens in Isaiah 10? This is a great passage. 
In Isaiah 10, God says that he's going to judge the nation of Israel, and he's going to do it by using the nation of Assyria. And he says of the king of Assyria, he does not so intend, which means it's not this king's intention to go out and carry out God's will. And God says he's going to be the staff of my indignation and the rod of my fury. He's going to use this king, this pagan king, to bring judgment on Israel. And then in verse 12, he turns around and he says, yet because of the manner in which he brings about this judgment on Israel, I'm going to judge this king. And what is it that the king said? For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, for I have understanding. It was my skills, my strategy that brought about this victory. Same term here is used for wisdom. It's being applied here in a technical sense for winning in battle. Uh, 2 Samuel, Joab is seeking out a guy named Sheba. He's going to bring justice to this guy. He goes to a city. The city is walled up, and this woman goes to them and says, Look, you have two choices. You can turn him over to Joab and his army, or we can all die. Which one do you want to do? It's cleverness, shrewdness, being able to apply knowledge and facts to your situation to bring about the best outcome. There are some that do not have this. The Bible speaks of the ostrich as being foolish. Job 39 the ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned. She lays her eggs. She's all happy. She's joyous. She celebrates it. She takes the eggs, puts them in the sand, and then walks off. No concern for the reality that someone might step on them. A snake might come and eat them. No concern for their well-being or their welfare. Like it never happened. Foolish. She doesn't have the ability to apply knowledge. She knows about her, her young. She just laid them there. But she doesn't have the ability to apply that knowledge in a practical way. Job 39, verse 17, very next verse. Because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. The ostrich isn't a very shrewd creature. It, it lacks wisdom. And there are some people who look at the ostrich and say, yeah, but I'm not an ostrich. I have wisdom. I have a lot of wisdom. And their wisdom actually becomes sinful because they twist that wisdom and they begin to say things like this. Instead of Isaiah, you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. People can think that their knowledge and their wisdom is smarter and better than God's. And here God says, look, you think you are I am? 
You think that there's no one besides you? You're a fool. You're deluded. So we, we've seen and seen again uh, that wisdom refers to technical skill. It can refer to shrewdness or cleverness. It also can describe skill in living, just in general living. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. If you want to find righteous people, find people who have skill in living according to the word of God. That's wisdom. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. Okay, so what have we seen here? Wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. To apply knowledge in a practical way. So let's kind of move over here. God is all-knowing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He has perfect knowledge. He has the ability to apply that knowledge perfectly to every situation. H.B. Uh, Smith defined God's wisdom this way. It's that attribute of God whereby he produces the best possible results with the best possible means. God uses his knowledge and he knows what is the best end he could bring about. What is the perfect result from every situation? And when he identifies that perfect result, his perfect knowledge lets him know exactly what means to use to bring about that end. The perfect means to bring about that end. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's knowledge being applied. Louis Burkhoff adds to the definition. He says, wisdom is that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends. God applies his perfect knowledge to bring about his desired end, whatever goal he has in mind. And what is the ultimate goal that God wants to bring about? You guys are good. Biblical doctrine. God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all of his good pleasure to glorify himself. God's wisdom is his ability to bring the most glory to himself through every means available. And he will use the perfect means to bring it about. That is what it means when we say God is wise. It's perfect knowledge being applied perfectly. If I can use the term twice in one sentence. Romans 16 says he is the only wise God. Proverbs 2 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You can only have wisdom if God gives it to you. Isaiah th uh, 33. And he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. All wisdom comes from God. And all wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. With him are wisdom and might, 
to him belong counsel and understanding. God has demonstrated his wisdom. He's demonstrated his wisdom through his works. He demonstrated his wisdom in his creation. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possession. If you want to see God's ability to apply his knowledge, look at creation. Look at the earth. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Think about the intricacies of the ecosystems of the earth. Think about how much is required to keep you alive. In just the natural sense. Think about all the things that have to happen in order for there to be oxygen remaining on the earth for you. That's wisdom. His wisdom is seen there. His wisdom is also seen in the creation of the heavens. It is he who made the, made the earth by his power. He established the world by his wisdom. And by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. I can't even paint a picture of the sky. Much less figure out how to make something like that. But God's wisdom is also seen in other ways. It's not just seen in creation. God's wisdom is also seen in his plan of redemption. Oh, the depths and the riches of both, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This is out of Romans 11. Why is it interesting that he puts it there? It's interesting because in the first 11 chapters, what does he do? He goes through the entire plan of salvation. He goes through and he explains the gospel. And when he's finished explaining the gospel, this is his, his conclusion. How unsearchable. God's wisdom is also seen in who is called and when they are called. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Who's called to salvation? It's determined by God in his infinite wisdom. Perfectly deciding all those that will be saved and those who will come to a saving faith in Christ. It's also shown in the lives of believers. And this is where wisdom becomes really practical for you. It's shown in your life, the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Salvation is the full demonstration of God's infinite and perfect wisdom. You are in Christ because of him. Everything that has occurred in your life, from your physical birth to your spiritual rebirth, all the way out to your physical death, everything that has happened and everything that will happen happens because God in his infinite wisdom has determined that is the best means of bringing about the best end. Everything that has happened. Go back and think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Ultimately, that is for your eternal good. 
And ultimately, that will bring about the most glory for God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You find people who are really upset about a certain situation, and they get mad at God. Take them to this verse, and have them read it. And they'll read it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. But, but, but my situation, but my situation. Okay, read the verse again. The verse there says God causes some things to work out for your good, right? No. No, it says that only a few things work out for your good. No, all things. Everything that has happened in your life, according to God's wisdom, happened for your eternal good. And your eternal good brings about the glory of God. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You guys know this. This is the chain of salvation, but it ends where? You being glorified. You being like Christ. 1 John 3, we'll see him as he is and we will be like him. Everything that happens in your life was sovereignly ordained by a perfectly wise God even if it's something that we think is bad. It was done for your ultimate good and for his glory. Paul recognized this in his own life. How many of you remember what Paul said? He said, I have a thorn in the flesh. I've got this nagging thorn that I can't get rid of. And I've asked God multiple times to remove this thorn, and he simply won't do it. Why? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Here's a question for you. This is hypothetical. Was there another way that God could keep him from exalting himself? There you go. Yeah, there were a million ways God could keep Paul from exalting himself. One way, he could have just killed him. He wouldn't exalt himself anymore. He could have ended the revelations. But instead, God said in his wisdom, the best way for me to bring about the ultimate sanctification of Paul, the best way that I could glorify the church and serve the church and ultimately bring glory to himself is to give Paul this thorn in the flesh that he despised. Paul hated that thing, wanted to go away. And this is a great place to stop and just ask a question. Is this the way you think during a trial? Is this the way we think when things are bad, when things aren't going the way we want them to go? Or do we start thinking, oh, God must have made a mistake here. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. No, everything that happens, happens because God is trying to bring about the most glory for himself. And that these events are happening because these are the ways that God is going to bring about your sanctification and your eternal good. Is that comforting? You do have access to God's wisdom. If you lack wisdom, 
If you're not very good at practically applying wisdom or applying knowledge, excuse me, you can go to him, James 1, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You have a decision to make. You're trying to decide if you should or should not do something. Do you go to God and ask for wisdom? Can anyone think of a person who went to God and asked for wisdom? Solomon. Look at what Solomon said. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. I'm a little kid. I don't know about practical living. I don't know about how to apply knowledge to ruling a kingdom. I don't have any wisdom. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. I'm not big enough for this, God. There's no way I can do this well on my own. I'm going to mess this up. So give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? I need wisdom. I cannot do what you've called me to do unless you supply me the means to apply that knowledge. The pastor preached on this a couple weeks ago. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. God answered his prayer. God gave him wisdom. And all of Israel knew that God answered his prayer. When all of Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. That's at the end of the same chapter. God answered his request. He gave him wisdom. And his wisdom was so wonderful that even other kings, other monarchs, came and wanted to hear from Solomon. The queen of Sheba came to test him with questions. Are you really as wise as you think you are? Let's find out. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon... And what was her final report when she looked at Solomon? What did she say about him? It's always a half truth. Yeah, he, he's only got a part of it. No, 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 no. Yeah. He's, I know what I heard. I heard it was magnificent, but what I heard was only half of the reality. It's gotcha. beyond what I even heard. Gotcha. It was a true report, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. What's interesting here is in this chapter, this same Hebrew word that we looked at at the beginning, chokmah, it's used six times in this one chapter. The chapter is all about the wisdom of Solomon. Where does this begin? 
Where does wisdom begin? Where do you begin to gain wisdom? The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's not just fearing wrath. It's not just being afraid. That's not the idea here. It's reverence. It's awe. It's being inspired of God in the sense of you're kind of bowing before his majesty. It's growing in your love of God, growing in your enjoyment of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom for you is the skill to live practically in the world in a godly way, to live a godly life. James 3, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom is displayed in a life that is righteous, living a godly life. And if you have godly wisdom, it only makes sense that you yourself would be righteous, that you would be living according to what God says. James continues here. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which that came down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. That's not a righteous life. That's not living according to what God has said. That's not applying the knowledge and the information God has provided you in his word. Godly wisdom, verse 17 But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed of whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you want wisdom, you go to God, you go to his word. Any questions on wisdom? Comments? Nothing. Okay. All right. Let's look at truth and faithfulness. We're going to start with truth. Um, once we understand truth, faithfulness will just kind of be obvious. Louis Burkhoff said, Truth is that perfection of his being by virtue of which he fully answers to the idea of Godhead, is perfectly reliable in his revelation, and sees things as they really are. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a thick definition. We're going to break that up a bit. I want to give you one more from Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem makes the definition a little bit easier to follow. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. Okay? So in what sense is God truth? When we say that God is truth, we're talking about the attributes of God here. When we say that, what do we actually mean by that? Well, the first way is he's the truth metaphysically. That is to say that he is not like the other gods. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the other gods, and we saw that the Bible refers to those other gods as lies. They're false. Um, Jeremiah, 
very, at the very end of that, third to last line, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth. These are these false gods, they did not create the world, they did not create the heavens. They're just rocks and stones and pieces of metal. God is the true God. Uh, John 17.3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ. So what do we mean here? Once in is he the true God? Well, he's the true God as opposed to all the other gods. The true God corresponds to um, the idea of God. He conforms to the idea of God. And the idea of God in him is perfectly realized. Burkhoff says he is all that God should be. The idea of God is that God is perfect. That God is perfect in power, wisdom, goodness. All of his attributes are perfect. That's why we call them perfections. Okay. So if God being true means that he conforms to the idea of God, what's the obvious question God is true, he conforms to the idea of God. Whose idea is this? What are we talking about? Whose idea? Who came up with this idea? What standard are we using? Surely he's not conforming to our idea of God. Because all those false gods are the ideas of men. So that can't be the, the idea that he's conforming to. So whose idea is it? It's his own. He conforms to his own idea. He is exactly what he says of himself. He is exactly who he believes himself to be. Uh, Wayne Grudem explained it this way. So we must say that God is, we must say that it is God himself who has the only perfect idea of what, is, of what the true God should be like. And he himself is the true God because in his being and character, he perfectly conforms to his own idea of what the true God should be. God knows himself perfectly. He knows himself infinitely. His standards are perfect. They are far above our own. And he conforms perfectly to his standard. That's the idea of God is true. He conforms perfectly to the standard of what God should be. And whose idea is that? It's his own. God also conforms ethically. Um, what was the problem with the Pharisees? What did Jesus lambast the Pharisees for over and over and over again? Hypocrisy. You're whitewashed tombs. You're all bright and clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You profess one thing, but in reality you're something completely different. You claim to be this, but in reality you're actually this over here. Not true with God. He reveals himself as he actually is. There's no hypocrisy. There's no deceit. And his revelation of himself 
is completely reliable. There's no deception in it. There's no misstatements. There's no mistakes. He gets it right. He never hides anything. In the Psalms, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. What God reveals, what he says about himself is absolutely true. His law is a perfect revelation of who he is. John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is a silly question to ask in a church like this. But do you believe that God's revelation is true? Like every bit of it? All of it? And that's silly to ask that question here because that's just something we all assume. But there are many who say, look, God is true, absolutely. But his revelation is not all true. Makes God a liar. It does. Um, we believe the Bible is true because it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. It's the revelation of himself. It's what he breathed out. Second uh, Peter 1 says, men were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture. The Bible refers to itself as the words of God himself. And yet there are some people who will affirm this, but then turn around and say, not all of the Bible is true. Not all of it is trustworthy. Roman Catholic Catechism. Since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Everything in this book is affirmed by the Holy Spirit. We say amen. Yes, we agree. Listen to how they finish this. We must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. What's the problem here? It's not complete. There's one phrase in here that's really problematic. Okay, you could say that. You could say, which ones are we talking about? Let's just assume they accept the canon that we accept. Let's just assume that for a moment. You're close. For the sake of our salvation. God inspired all of Scripture. But the only part of it that is actually reliable and true are those parts that concern salvation. The other parts, according to the Catholic Church, are not reliable. Now that brings a real problem. How do you know which ones concern salvation? <laughs> he said the Pope. <laughs> yeah, you, you have no idea. It could be, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to go into the the rationale that led to that. I just realized that's such a contradiction. You're going to say that God is true and that God affirms the scriptures and that God wrote the scriptures, and then you're going to turn around and say part of them 
isn't true. Cannot be trusted. many other churches are teaching today is that it's about you it's about what you know you control god he's not sovereign he just does what you want he's your little genie yeah um a couple decades ago there was a guy um really passionate evangelist on fire preaching everywhere studying his bible praying decides he wants to go into ministry gets accepted into princeton seminary which is attached to Princeton, but it's not part of Princeton. And while in Princeton, he has to write a paper on a supposed contradiction in the book of Mark. And he goes through and he writes this long paper. He spends weeks on this paper, turns it in. A couple weeks later, the professor gives him his paper back. And he flips to the last page. On the last page, the professor wrote, what if Mark was just wrong? And this young man thought about it for a while. And he came to the realization, yeah, what if Mark was just wrong? What if just a little part of the Bible is not true? What if 1% just isn't true? And he embraced that idea. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, uh, just to let you know, he's now an atheist. And he's a critic of the Bible. He's a textual critic. He's a textual scholar who has now become a critic. And you know what he said was the start of his downfall, of his apostasy? Accepting that 1% of the Bible wasn't true. Because if you embrace the idea that 1% is not true then you can no longer go to the text and say, what does this text mean? You have to begin by asking, is it even true? And now you have to prove the Bible is true. Let me ask you a question. How do you prove that someone rose from the dead? How do you prove a miracle? You can't. That's dangerous. All right. In what sense is God is truth? He's truth logically. That is to say that there are things that I know, but it's wrong. I know something's really well, completely wrong. God knows all things as they truly exist, not are they truly exist. He knows them perfectly as they actually are. He has no error in his understanding. Everything he knows is absolutely true. Job says he has perfect knowledge. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? When we talk about the perfection of God's knowledge, we're talking about that he knows the truth and he knows all of it. He's also made your mind capable of understanding or receiving the truth. 
But as I've already said, our knowledge and understanding isn't perfect. It's not perfect because it's cursed by sin. It's plagued by sin. We, we don't think perfectly. We don't put thoughts together perfectly. It's plagued by biases. Illogical syllogisms, those are illogical trains of thought. A plus B must be D, but you completely missed one, right? That's the result of sin. So the question is, how can you trust your mind? How can you trust, how can you know that what you know is true? How can you be certain that you have truth? That you know the truth? If your mind is corrupted by sin, what standard do you use? What determines what is really true? And there are some people who say, well, I can use my reason. I can think really, really, really hard and for a long time and I can come up with the truth. What's the problem with that? Yeah. It's the same sin-cursed mind. You, that, yeah, your mind is still corrupted by sin. It's not possible. You can think really hard all day. You'll still come up with error. Okay, I won't use my reason. I have a better solution. We'll use science. Science will tell us what is actually true. We can conduct some experiments. We can conduct many experiments with many scientists. And that'll tell us what is and is not true, right? What's the problem there? Just applied reason, yeah. The scientific method. You start with a hypothesis. You have to think to come up with a hypothesis then you have to think to come up with the tests that are going to prove the hypothesis. And then once you get all the data, then you have to think some more to interpret the data. And you're still relying on a sin-ravaged mind that's corrupted, that's full of deceit. Okay. So I won't just use my opinion. My interpretation. We'll get science and we'll get a lot of scientists. And we'll have a whole big group of people. And all of us together, collectively, will somehow be able to determine what is true. That's just more sinners. <laughs> you haven't solved the problem. We need an ultimate standard. We need someone who can tell us and show us what is true so we can compare what we know to that. God is that standard. But if he's that standard, that must mean he is reliable. He is reliable in every way. By the way, before I move on, um, this is one of the good arguments against atheism. You don't have knowledge and understanding without God. You can't understand truth without God. For an atheist to argue about science is ridiculous. Okay, faithfulness. It is. He said theology is the queen of science. And that used to be in most of the um, Ivy League schools. 
theology was considered the queen of the sciences because they understood without the knowledge of God, you can't understand anything in the creation. All right. So God is the standard that must mean he is reliable. That's another way to say our third attribute. Faithfulness. All right, well, you're going to get a whole slide at once here. God cannot lie. His God is absolute truth. It's against his nature to tell a lie. And therefore, all that God says is true. All that God says can be trusted. It is reliable. Every promise that God has made, he has made that promise with the full intention of fulfilling the promise. He has made the promise um, knowing that he has the means to fulfill that promise. He is able to fulfill the promise. And he's made the promise knowing that he will fulfill it. If God said he's going to do it, God is truth. God is reliable. He will accomplish what he has said. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. He makes promises, he keeps them. I was reading uh, Joshua 23 last night. Joshua's about to go to his death, he's about to die. And he tells the children of Israel, look, God promised to bring you into the land, he did it. God promised to remove everybody before you, he did it. And he will continue to do that all the way through the rest of your life, if you will serve him. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The promises made to you in Scripture are made by a truthful God who is reliable. The promises that he made to bring you to salvation, to glorify you, those are true and he will fulfill them. First uh, John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians, every answer is yes. The answer to every promise is yes, he will do it. All right, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. We thank you that we can trust all that you say, that everything that you say, everything that you do is true, uh, that you have given us a reliable, trustworthy revelation of who you are, that your revelation is full of wisdom, that you can teach us how to live practically in the world, to live a life that's pleasing to you. We just ask that you would help us to trust you more, to trust your word more. We ask that you would be with us in our time of worship this morning that would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.